Welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. My name's Dulta Doherty, and in this podcast series, I will be talking to investors, advisors, entrepreneurs, and recruiters who are based all over the world, and we will be discussing how to set up, scale, and operate a world-class recruitment company. Now, I'm, I'm in a good mood today. We've booked a trip to New York. I'm going to bring the podcast on the road. We're going to get a videographer, and we're going to do some live shows in New York City. So I'm super pumped about that. And it's been a long road to get to this point. And I just am absolutely buzzing about this. So we had Carla Reffold on the podcast today. She is the founder of Beach and Madam. They are a cybersecurity recruitment firm based out of the UK and New York City. They were acquired by Nicole Curtin, who she now works for, and we discussed her journey and how she founded, sold the company, continues to build the brand with the help of Nicole Curtin, and has managed to do it in a male-dominated industry of cybersecurity, become a speaker, be a Forbes, a Forbes contributor, and... It's just a really driven, ambitious professional who has kind of done all the stuff that people set out to do. And her next challenge is scaling in the USA. So we went into a bit of detail on that. And Carla was very candid in discussing the challenges that it brings to your personal life, to your emotional state, it's not easy finding and scaling and selling a business, but she's managed to do it. She's managed to come out the other side. And I think her story is just inspirational and should be, if you're a female founder out there and you want to you wanna role model to base yourself on, this is the one you want to listen to. Hi, Carla. How are you today? I'm really good. How are you? I am fantastic. Do you know why I'm fantastic? Why? Apart from getting to speak to you, we've just booked a trip to New York to bring the podcast on the road. Oh, amazing. I know. So we're going to go over there. We're going to cut some episodes and bring a videographer with us. And uh, yeah, really kind of bring to life all the stuff that we've been talking about brilliant i love it when i get to work in new york oh, awesome. do you get over there much uh yes uh every month or every two months oh, fantastic okay well thanks so much for coming on uh, i've given everybody a brief rundown into your background but i suppose what we'd like to do is go back to the start and how you got into recruitment you've uh your entry into recruitment looks like it was quite old school. Yeah, I suppose so now. It's changed a lot in the past 10 years or so. Um, so I started because I had friends who were doing it and I thought it would be a great way to make money. And um, it was just as kind of LinkedIn. LinkedIn existed, but it hadn't really taken off as a platform. So things were very much about database searches, job boards, 
making phone calls. Hmm. I found it was like that even in 2011. Probably. Um, it's really just the last few years, I guess, where everyone's yeah. talking about content and candidates don't respond as much to that headhunt call as they used to. They're used to being contacted via LinkedIn or via Twitter, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, and I'll probably jump into some of that with you later on. One thing I've noticed is that you're a contributor to Forbes. How did you manage to to do that? How, like, what does that look like? Because I'm sure it, people listening would go, oh, I'd like to do that. That would be great for my profile and my personal brand. Yeah, and it really is. Uh, I get a lot of leads and referrals kind of off the articles that I put out through Forbes. Um, they contacted me. I don't I don't know. I Ooh, wish I did. You're a big deal then, hey? <laughs> oh, I'm totally a big deal, yeah. yeah. Come on, Forbes. Where are you? <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so you did B and C at the start of your career. Was that fresh out of uni? Pretty much, yes. So that was my first step into recruitment. Okay. Their, their recruitment training machine they they train absolute killers what was the environment like back then you know it was great it was a great group of people I worked in a regional office and the the downside for me was that you get a very small piece of the pie Mm. you know I did temp finance staff in East Hertfordshire so there's not a lot there um but the training was great the people were great you know really good intelligent people that pretty much all have continued their careers in recruitment and so you did that for a year and what was your next move was it an internal move no so my next move was to um a very small recruitment company that they weren't quite a startup but i think i was employee probably 10 or 11 at that point so um almost and it was just worlds apart. I got to go in front of C-level execs in a niche market very quickly. And I really was able to build out the network that I have today from that role. And what was it, what was it like going from the intensity of a scalable, a owned recruitment business to working for a boutique back then? Was it just like one seat for another? Or was, there, was there like noticeable differences? There's a notable difference. You get so much more autonomy, which I loved. I could talk to whoever I wanted and I really felt like I was building something and I knew what my purpose was. The downside of that is obviously that nobody's there spoon feeding you or guiding you. There's no process and structure to tell you what your boundaries are. So I loved that, but I, I started with a couple of other people at the same time that didn't thrive in that. Mm. Why do you think they didn't thrive and you did? I think that I was very good at getting the support of the people around me. So even though there wasn't that structure of, you know, there's your training manager, you go ask. You know, I I worked really closely with the other people that were there and just asked for their help when I needed it in a way that other people didn't. I think they wanted to be seen as knowing it all when actually at that point in your career, you just don't. Yeah, I I remember being in that stage and I remember I, I would be I befriended the biggest billers in the room just went drinking with them because all we ever talked about as expats was recruitment anyway and and I think that there stood with me just being immersed in how obsessed they were yeah 
it, it did you know my social time was talking about work I practiced my pitches in the evening and how I was going to do the big meetings that I had um, probably a bit fearless I got in front of people that if I'd have realized who they were I wouldn't have called so um, it was just kind of living it I suppose the, the the limitations that we put on ourselves just just jumping into what you said there but if you were aware of who they were you may have been a bit more afraid to make the call it it's probably one of the reasons why we love taking people fresh into the industry it's because they come in with that fearless approach and they don't overthink that person's importance really whereas sometimes people who've been in the industry can be a bit more hesitant yeah, absolutely. And I'd say it's a theme throughout my career. If I'd realized what I was taking on at the time, I wouldn't have done it. It was that naivety and that arrogance that got me to where I am. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I'm going to jump into a bit more of that late, later in it, because I feel like it's, it's your story's interesting because you're in a male dominated environment and mm-hmm. you've managed to turn that to your advantage. How, how did you find that both from the cyber world, the male, male-dominated world, and the, the recruitment world, to a point, agency recruitment can be quite a boys' club, especially in tech. How, how did you get the bit between your teeth to go, I'm going to turn this to my advantage? And did, did, you, find it, did you find it was a challenge? I think in both, both spaces that I've tackled it slightly differently so in cyber security it's very male dominated and I've used that to my advantage I realize I stand out and I realize it's given me a platform that I can take advantage of in recruitment you stand out but you want to fit in so you uh, you adapt slightly differently and I would say that I've I've thrived working in male dominated teams and at many points in my career I've been the only girl in that team Mm. and uh, I, I don't know really what the what the answer is. I guess I've just gone with it and adapted to the terrible, terrible conversations that sometimes uh, sometimes come up. Yeah, and they do. Like it, it's uh, maybe the world's a wee bit different now. I think I think maybe people are a bit more sensitive. But I can imagine as you would have been in your twenties when you're starting when you're starting in recruitment, and you know you're you're a high flyer in a room you probably would have had to bite your lip a few times. Yeah, I think you just have to accept that, um, honestly, boys sometimes are disgusting and you just (laughs) need to ignore it. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, Okay. And uh, (laughs) with that, (laughs) um, so look, I'm not going to go into uh, all the different roles that you've done since, but what I am interested in is what, what, what was it that made you think you could set up a recruitment business. And what was your vision at the outset? And what type of things did you take from the the journey that you had already? Uh, I think it was naivety and arrogance, for sure, that I could do it better. I could see a gap in the market for the type of business that I wanted to create. Um, at the point that I did do it, I'd actually, I'd spent a couple of years being as part of an in-house recruitment team and what I learned from that is there are some really awful recruiters out there Uh, I only had one recruitment company ever call me back once nobody else ever followed up and 
I think only once or twice did I ever have a recruitment company call me about a candidate. Everyone just called and said, hey, can I work on your job? So I think once I saw how badly people were doing it, I knew that I was going to be able to do it better. And what, how, did you know exactly which industry you go into from, from, from the start? How did you choose that? What, what were those early days like? So when I started, I was doing information security and what we used to call corporate governance, risk management. Yeah. But within a year of setting up the business, this word cyber security became the buzzword. And it's a, cyber is essentially information security just by a different name. But by honing in on that, specializing and branding ourselves as this is all we do, we're going to we're going to go even more niche than doing risk management and just do cyber and it took off and that's where you know I, I I always say we're lucky that we we kind of hit the market at the right time yeah I was doing IT infrastructure recruitment in that time and I was I was in a regional market in Australia and cyber wasn't happening as much but I could I could see that that was going to be the major thing how how did you like it looks from the outside that you were able to kind of embed yourself in the community as a talker, as a speaker, as a, as a, as, as a judge uh, in, in terms of awards and all the rest. How did that take place? How did you manage to position yourself as, hey, I'm, I'm not a cyber engineer, but I'm going to be the authority here? I think there are three things that I've done to get that. So the first one is I've literally just asked. I message people who are doing events and say, hey, would you like me to speak? Um, I'm really clear on what I speak about. So I'm not a cybersecurity expert. But what I am an expert on is recruitment trends and salaries and career advice within that space. So I stay in my lane. And then the third thing is that I started my career at talking to quite senior people who are now really, really senior. So my network's grown up with me and those people are in a position to bring me with them. So let me bring you back to those early days. You're in internal recruitment. You're slightly out of practice with business development. How did you manage to get it off the ground? And what was kind of like, walk me through what those early days looked like. They were so much fun. They, you know, we were the new company. We could say how, you know, my big sale was I'm hungrier than your competition because this is now my life. So that was really, really good fun. Um, I put people around me that were also as good at it. And I stuck to that principle that you're calling to sell the fact that you can find people. So call with something that you can sell. Call with a person. Don't just call and have a chat or ask for jobs. Prove that you're good. Prove that by the people you have. Show product, yeah. Um, and and when, you were, when you were setting out your vision, it's pretty clear how, how you're operating and what your USP is. How did you manage to persuade people to join you? Did you have to go get funding? was uh, were you able to kind of get a bit of runway together how how did that there look in the early days and how long did it take you to get up to that magical point where you have close to 10 people uh we self-funded for the first year and within a year um 
I'd made enough money to be able to hire two others. So one of those was someone I'd worked with before. And one of those was somebody who was totally fresh, but just got it and just got the idea that this could be something really big. Getting up to that 10 person mark was quite easy from there. So um, really clear strategy. Once we've gone 10 grand over target in a month, we're going to hire the next person. So that meant we were able to scale to that point quite easily. That's a, that's a good model. I, 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 was, I was wondering how, how companies do that. How did you come to that 10K mark? Was there an advisor on board to be able to, like, did you have a, somebody on your exec team that says, look, this is, this is how you do it? Or was that just intuitive to yourself? Uh, I learned a lot. So in the early days of the business, I learned how to do our accounts and our marketing and everything that goes with running a business. Like I, looking back, I probably shouldn't have taken on all those things. But what that meant was I knew that 10 grand was about my risk. It's roughly what it would cost me to hire somebody and keep them employed for three months. It's probably a bit more than that these days. So that was where I got the number from. Okay, no, it's uh, it's pretty good. It's a question I've asked a lot of people, and they weren't able to give me a straight answer. Uh, I see a lot of businesses who are just just hiring like crazy, um, with uh, without a specific framework in mind. So you've got you've got about 10, 10 people. At the, when you had about ten people, you're up, you're running. Were you are you at a point where you're bringing in lots of grads or experienced hires, or how did you find that blend? And, and how you must be at a point now where you're starting to put your identity into, are you a boutique? Are you going to be a scalable company? Are you going to build, build to sell the company? How, how did that all kind of come about? And what did that look like? My goal from day one was build to sell. And one of the things that I'd learned from being a part of the previous startup was you get to kind of 10 people, your culture changes, but you probably don't have the processes you need to be a company of that size. So I'd put those processes in from day one and that really helped us go from the next step, which was we probably went from 10 to 17, 18 and then jumped to 25. And then you're away to the races. Can you jump into those processes, please? Yeah, so things like I had a, a handbook, I had induction plans, I had a, you know, almost a how-to on recruitment with, we use uh, job order forms, so, you know, you've got it all laid out in front of you when you're taking a brief, and I still use those today, I'm, I know that I can forget things, so it's not something you use for training, it's something you just use as part of your process, so I had all of that set up pretty much from day one. So you're you're up up to a point where you've got twenty five people. Mm-hmm. Your goal is to sell the company. How do you go about that? Are you, are you using a broker? Are are you aware of what you need in terms of temp to perm ratio? Are you looking at what you need to build uh, on your net profit, on on your EBITDA? How does that look like from from the founder's perspective? And like walk us through that that journey. So I guess this is where it gets a little bit interesting because at the point I get to twenty five staff, it all starts. <laughs> what year are we in? <laughs> so we're in twenty sixteen, and uh, I've just had my second baby. I oh, am man. trying to take maternity leave, but I, I wouldn't say I've ever actually achieved that. And 
I'd hired too many people too quickly. My ratio of billing staff to new people was totally off. And I lost my bottle and we got rid of the people that weren't performing and scaled it back down. And at that point, I'd been introduced to uh, Nicole Kirsten through somebody in the industry who were interested in making acquisitions. And I said, no, Um, it just, I just dropped everything down and I felt like we had more to do and I had learned from some mistakes I knew how we needed to build it back up and the industry stuff that everyone tells you about your contract to perm ratio what your profit needs to look like how um, you as a an owner a leader need to be detached from the business as someone who want to buy you I didn't have any of that um, if I was Nicole Curtin in that scenario I would have said okay we'll not do a full acquisition we'll help build you up and then we'll do the rest of the acquisition is that what happened that is exactly what they said, and that's exactly what I said no to. Um, sort of... <laughs> Always looking for an angle, you know. <laughs> uh, okay. The investment and support, it wasn't what I needed at the, the time, and I sort of felt like losing that control wasn't going to be financially worthwhile enough for me to make an exit at that point. Talk to me about being a mom of two kids and going through all of this. Like, We've just had two kids in two years. My wife is coming back to the business next week. But essentially, she has, she's had two years out of this of this business. I don't want to play down her role. Um, how did you how did you manage that? <laughs> um, emotionally, it's very hard from a work perspective I was sending emails while I was in labor I was reading contracts the day my first son was born and I don't know if I should be proud of those things or not maybe I should have stepped back a little bit more than I did but it um it felt necessary at the time there's the other emotional thing that mothers mothers beat themselves up about this type of stuff like you're like I don't know if I should be proud of that and it my my wife's always like oh look look, I feel like I'm not giving them enough all the time I think it's just from seeing it with her, it, it's much harder than us men realize how it is. So it, it, it blows my mind that you're able to do this. I think nobody or very few people will probably have said to you, oh, you're having a second child. What are you doing about work? And, you know, how do you look after your children? Do you feel guilty about leaving them? People don't ask dads those questions. Yeah. And they're, they're really hard. You have to have, like, I have a real belief that I'm doing the right thing for their future. So that's what kind of gets me through. But it is it is hard when people challenge you in that way. So walk me through the next period of time. And you're, you've gone through a tough time. The business mm. has taken a bit of a hit. Your ego has definitely taken a bit of a hit because you were flying up to this point. But you still believe in the vision. You still believe in where you can get to. How did you roadmap the next period to get to the, to, get to the sale? Uh, I dug my heels in and I made some personal sacrifices. So I knew that our US arm of the business, it was about a year or two old at that point. I knew that that was going to be where some real growth was. So playing on the mum thing, I left a poorly six-month-old baby with my parents and went off to the US to do a trip, which generated enough business that got us back on track. And that came back to me going back to basics and doing that work which wasn't part of the vision, but it felt like it was the only solution at the time. And that really got us back on track. 
did you were so so did you have an office in in the US at this stage or were you working it remotely from London we were working it remotely from London but that trip enabled me to get two people out in New York for a, a few months later that's amazing walk me through that process and is that before Nicole Curtin came came on board yeah, at that point, I'd just said no to Nicole Curtin. I wasn't ready to sell. So that um, it was all happening about the same time. So I kind of got us back on track by doing some deals myself, got a good core of people within the company in the UK, put people on the ground out in the US to really help us grow that out. Um, and things were starting to starting to write themselves. From the outside looking in, you appear to be this millionaire founder, but really you're on the edge right now when you're doing this. You're you're trying to you're trying to do do everything in your life at the one time and get a and and win business to be able to keep everything afloat and get to the next stage. It it you must have been under unbelievable pressure. Yeah, I really was, and. Um... You know, it wasn't a great time. You're you're absolutely right. People assume you own a business, especially if it's been established for a while. You've got all the money in the world, and at points, the reality of that is just not true. There are there are definitely people um, who have stayed as really high billing consultants in a business and probably earned more money than I have over that that period of time. Yeah, fantastic. And just to give people a bit of an insight. There's plenty of work in the UK. Fees are a little bit higher in America and salaries are a little bit higher. And the marketplace is just so much bigger. Was that the driver to get over there? And if you're working that remotely initially, were were your consultants working odd hours on the promise that they'd get a move to America? Or how did that kind of unravel itself? At that time, they weren't. My, I have consultants uh, here now still doing the US market from the UK, and they now do different hours because they want to They want to move. But at the time, they weren't. They were pretty much doing UK hours. And I think we were just in the right space at the right time. People did want to talk to us. We managed our day. We managed our time really well, and it, it worked out. And I'm really focused on the well-being of the consultants that I have so the team that I have now doing these odd hours I hate it they want to do it but I really worry about what that means for their energy levels their personal lives and how long they can keep that up for yeah it's it's a it's a grind I do a bit of it myself um and that process to get registered in America you 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 must have had to put a bit of capital investment into getting an American entity up up and running or were you running it all remotely until until you had that for the first couple of years we were registered there uh, we were we've been an llc for about four and a half years now but we were running it from the uk so our initial investment wasn't huge um but yeah there there is an investment and i think it's harder now to go to go do that yeah so i looked into it and you need an, a minimum of 150 investors um, USD to get the entity if you want an E2 visa um, but I think it's getting harder and I suppose it just depends on the route. Did you did you set up your LLC out of New York or out of somewhere that was a bit more tax f- favourable? I set it up out of Florida, not necessarily on a tax basis but 
I used a consultant who used to work for the UK trade and industry body and who had loads of experience helping UK companies break into the US. And they were Florida. So that's why we did Florida. Um, New York and California are horrendous for for the for the corporation tax. So they that's are. What, <laughs> that's what I was asking. Um, okay, so you're back up and running. You've 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 dug your heels in. You've you've made it work. You've got rid of the dead wood. You've refined things a little bit. What what was the process with Nicole Curtin from here again? Were they still saying, "Hey, we're still interested"? A lot changed in 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 my life. At, at kind of the few months after that, I think the the pressure made a few things crack, and I I got divorced at that point. And I thought, you know what? I don't think I want to sell, but I'm going to go have lunch with them and see see where they're at and just keep in touch just in case I change my mind and their view on what they wanted to do with an acquisition was totally different from when I'd first met them and what had always kind of been had gone through the conversations we'd had even when we decided it wasn't right was that we were really aligned on our values and how we saw the market and that came through very strongly so it suddenly just felt like actually this is the right thing at the right time and the platform they're going to give me to expand the business and do all the things I want to do is here now. So did it feel almost like you were getting a platform and investment rather than selling the business? Yeah it did feel like that and you know, on paper, that's certainly not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, But it does feel like that. So technically, I don't own the business right now and I'm employed, but I very much feel that this is my business. The emotional attachment I have to this is the same as ever. What uh, What's your headcount at right now? We're at 15 right now and growing. What, what things changed? when you're owned by a larger business from from your own standpoint from a from a reporting standpoint from a decision making standpoint how, how from a cultural standpoint like what what are the small things that are different now to what it was before we we moved into their offices so i told the team we were being sold on the Wednesday and on the Friday we moved into their offices so it happened really quick for them I didn't want to give them a lull where they were worrying and we've kept our own identity but it is nice being part of a bigger sales floor it's nice to have incentives that are then group-wide rather than company-wide so instead of having you know a, a lunch club with a couple of us it's a lunch club with 10 people and those those sort of things make it a lot more fun and give us a lot more internal competition as well. We, we want to be the best company within the group. Who gets to pick the best grad who comes through the door? How does that work? <laughs> Do you know this is so topical? Yeah, I bet um, it is. Yeah. <laughs> because we're arguing about this a lot at the moment. So yeah. we've had to, um, we put some processes in place in the group. So yeah. we ask people before they come in which brands they prefer and we prioritize which brand has the greatest need to hire at that point. So we're trying to keep it fair. So, uh, Nicole Carton, for anybody listening, their specialism isn't as niche focused, isn't that right? They're more generalist in terms of IT. Yeah, we've got some plans on how that changes. But uh, Nicole Curtin focus on technology into banking and fintech. Right. OK. Quite a quite a broad spectrum, though, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And they, they, they have a different proposition for people joining, uh, you know, big corporate accounts in a slightly different way of working. And then there's another company in the group called District 4, which are, again, slightly different, and they do DevOps recruitment. So they work with, you know, up-and-coming fintechs and startups. So we all have a slightly different view on what we offer and why someone would want to work for us. Obviously, yeah. I'm the best. Uh, obviously. So, so <laughs> how, do you, how, how do you get that grad on board? Do you know what? It's a great story to be able to say you're working for the founder who grew a business and sold it, who writes for Forbes and is a judge in the industry. They're, they're really good selling points. And I have a great team as well. It's a great team to be a part of. Good on you. Tell me, what's next for you? America domination. Oh, domination. Domination. <laughs> $13 billion industry. Carla Rafford, here she comes. Well, I only want fifty million dollars of it. But, you know, okay. you guys, you guys can share the rest. But oh, um, all right. yeah, yes. Walk me through what that looks like. Like, what? How, how are you going to make it in America? From a point where you have two people right now, to and and your team over in the UK, what does that look like? So I will hopefully, if, uh, you know, if the president would like to let me in, then uh, we will hopefully be there in June on the ground. Uh, I'm bringing between four and five staff from uh, across the group with me. And where on the ground? I'm going to have a couple of people in New York and I'm going to be in D.C. So a lot of the cyber talent is in D.C. So we're going to build that out as a real hub. And I'm going to use all the lessons I've learned, all the mistakes I've made from having done this for the past uh, eight, 10 years, try and make different mistakes and do it on a bigger scale quicker. Our goal is 50 million in five years with a hundred staff. Wow. Okay. Um, so when, when you look at the market, is there somebody that you're basing their success on that you think you can, you can replicate? Somebody's done it from the UK already? No, maybe I should. That's probably good advice. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think. Well, I think the ones who've done it are, are have all come from S three, in terms of like their their companies have, um, like the Frank Group have, GQR have, Faden have, and there's a few others. But your culture sounds like it's quite different, so it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting on that. The challenge that I see a lot of them facing is it's very hard for them to attract American talent. To their business and uh, because there's such an independent culture there of maybe like as soon as you get your training you just set up your own shop alone how how do you think you're going to overcome that i think by doing what we do really well here in the uk we have a really great inclusive company culture we hire diverse ambitious people that get the vision of what we're building and we reward them really well. The benefits that you have, the earning potential that you have here, you know, it's hard to go do that on your own and to scale that. Like, I've, I've done it, I know. Tell um, me about it. Yeah, so it's, I think we're going to focus on investing in the people that we have, paying them well, getting the best possible people on board and trying to retain them that way. All right, Carla. It sounds... Like you have your hands full of what's ahead. It's really exciting. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and just being so candid about it all. I wish you the best for the future. 
thank you. Thanks for having me. What an interesting episode that was. Carla is such an impressive founder and I think we could all learn a lot from listening to her journey. So big thanks to Carla for coming on and sharing that and sharing sharing her personal experiences and the ups and the downs and just being really candid. And I think that she, because she's such an open book, I think that's probably why she's had so much success and is able to build trust so well. And that comes out in her brand. So well done, Carla. And we will be back again very soon with another amazing guest. Until then, take care.